In the previous episode... When you go through genetic testing, you don't have to be a big expert on the genetics. Like there's nobody that's an expert on genetic testing interpretation, by the way, because it's a new science, right? We're all just learning. We're all in that infancy stage of learning. But when you understand a few of these and you know how to do a very simple test and explanation for people, you can motivate them to do the things you probably were going to tell them to do anyway, right? Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare, a podcast for health and wellness practitioners passionately committed to transforming our current broken, disease-focused system. Your host, Dr. Rita Marie Los Calzo, is devoted to helping you get results with complex health challenges like autoimmune, hormonal imbalances, and chronic health challenges caused by nutritional and lifestyle-induced imbalances. Here's your host, Dr. Rita Marie. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for health and wellness practitioners who are passionate about making a difference. On today's episode, we're going to talk about blood sugar and the genetic factors that influence insulin, the risk of diabetes and insulin resistance, and the ability of a person to maintain healthy blood sugar levels. If you're a health practitioner who really wants to help people to get well, not to just cover up symptoms, not to just apply protocols, whether nutritional or pharmaceutical, we are doing a live event that's just right for you. It's called Functional Nutrigenomics in Clinical Practice. And it's all about how you can learn the genetic testing you can do with people to help you to personalize their diet and lifestyle plans. And when you put that together with your typical really great functional history and lab testing, you're gonna have all you need. So join us for an online virtual event that you can attend from anywhere. It's June 2nd to 4th, 2023. And you can get there by going to nesliveconference.com. That's nesliveconference.com. And we'll also put the link on the show notes page. As you know, there's a big epidemic of blood sugar imbalance going on right now. And you also know that blood sugar balance is related to the immune system. Therefore, over the time we've had this pandemic epidemic going on, a lot of the people that are at risk are people with blood sugar imbalance. And guess what? Recent studies have shown that 92% of the population is considered metabolically unhealthy. There was a study that came out a few years back that said it was 88%, and the more recent studies showing that 92%. So if 92% of the population is metabolically unhealthy, chances are pretty good that that person sitting across the table from you or across the Zoom screen from you is in that population. And what does metabolically unhealthy mean? unstable blood sugar, increased waist-hip ratio, and all the things that we associate with insulin resistance. One of the things you may have noticed is that there's certain people that no matter what they eat, they maintain their blood sugar, very small percentage of the population. Then there's another percentage of the population, a larger percentage, I believe, that no matter how clean they eat, they have to be even cleaner to maintain their blood sugar. In other words, they're very sensitive to the glucose levels in their blood and they have to work really hard at it. And then there's a bunch of people in the middle 
that, you know, can go either way and can end up with diabetes or other blood sugar imbalance uh, complications as a result of they, what they eat, but they have to be careful, not as careful as that small population. So why is it that this one set of people is so resistant to it and other people are so sensitive to it? It has to do with the genetics, right? And one of the things that you need to do is to learn to differentiate these people. You need to help people to determine how their food, but also their lifestyle impacts their blood sugar and how to keep it in that nice, healthy range we call the sweet spot. It's so important to teach people how to check their blood sugars, how to graph it out, and determine what foods and what lifestyle habits are putting them out of their sweet spot. So I want to start by talking about a few of the major SNPs. If you're doing genetic testing, you've seen these on some of the reports. I'm not going to go through all of them. There are lots, 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 many dozens. And I've put together a chart that's available in, for people that are in our NEPT program or our, or our nutrigenomics programs that have all of these listed. I have a 16-page chart that's beautifully formatted that helps you to see like, what is the SNP? What does it mean? And what people can do to keep it under control. So I want to go through about six or seven of these that I find to be very, very telling. And I'll just give you an example. I tend to be one of these people that's super sensitive. I have to be super careful what I eat or it's going to shoot my blood sugar up. And so as a result, I, I limit. I limit carbohydrates. I, I don't eliminate, but I limit fruits and I have ways that I eat them to keep the blood sugars from going up too high. I limit starches. So I'm able to keep my blood sugars in a very steady range, to keep my insulin in the ideal range of two between two and three, to keep my hemoglobin A1C in a very healthy range, like right around 5.1, and to keep my fasting glucose in the low 80s and sometimes 70s and sometimes even 60s, depending on what I'm doing. How can I do that? because I've learned that genetically I am prone to having problems with insulin regulation, with having problems with glucose regulation. And as a result, I need to be more careful. I've seen people who can eat five bananas and not have their blood glucose go up. Not me, I can sniff at a banana and take a bite of it and my blood sugar will start to climb. You're gonna see people like that. You're gonna hear people say that in your initial intake. Like, no matter what I eat, no matter how careful I am, I can't keep my blood sugar steady. That's where you have to come in at a, as a very skilled practitioner to help them identify. Do you have to do genetic testing on everybody to figure this out? Not necessarily. But as I've said in a previous episode, when you show them that they are genetically prone to this, they tend to listen up and take action a lot more carefully. So I'm going to teach you about about six of these. Let me see, I have seven of them on my list. And I have a complete presentation on this that I shared with folks in my nutritional endocrinology practitioner training, and also with people who joined our insulin resistance practitioner training. And I went through these in detail, because it's really nice to know when people are asking, because guess what? People are hearing about genetic testing, and they want to do it for themselves. So let me start with one is called IGF1R. That's the SNP. And recall, SNP, single nucleotide polymorphisms, those are what in the olden days we used to call genetic defects, they're genetic variants. So this one is insulin-like growth factor one receptor. 
and it's a protein that has a similar molecular structure to insulin, and it binds to insulin receptors. And when it binds to the insulin receptors, it can cause insulin resistance in the target tissues. And excess IGF-1 will lead to, in some sensitive people, increased risk of cancer. So this is an important one to know about. And if you find that somebody has a SNP here, which means they're not regulating their levels of this insulin-like growth factor, then what happens is they're going to be more prone to insulin resistance. Another one is the insulin receptor gene, LEPR, and that controls leptin. And we know that leptin controls the appetite, especially between meals. It's what sends the signal to the brain and to the pancreas that says, oh, we've had enough. It's produced from lipids, from fat cells, and it lets the brain know, don't eat anymore, don't eat anymore, don't eat anymore. When there's a problem with this leptin gene, it's associated with people having increased snacking behavior, the inability to turn off the appetite in between meals, even though they've just had a full meal because their brain isn't getting that signal. So that's the LEPR gene. Another one that's super important related to the receptors is called GLUT2. You've probably heard of that, glucose transporter 2. And these, these SNPs that I'm talking about, these genes I'm talking about, code for specific proteins in the body that have a specific function. And when we have variants in these particular genes, then we're not going to get the right behavior on the part of the body. So the GLUT2 it codes for a cell receptor that allows for glucose transport into cells. Sounds pretty important, eh? When we can't get the glucose into the cells, it triggers the pancreas to produce more insulin. And we still can't get the glucose into the cells and the pancreas continues to produce more insulin. And what that results in is insulin resistance. The cells are turning off increased insulin resistance, but it also results in all the downsides of excess insulin, which we'll talk about in another episode. Among those are variations in other hormones, problems with thyroid hormone, which what does that do? Affects metabolic function. So you could see that some of these SNPs that relate to blood sugar can result in people gaining weight and having hormonal imbalances. So this GLUT2, this receptor is found in a lot of places in the hepatocytes, the cells in the liver, the pancreatic beta cells, intestinal mucosa, and also kidney. And it has a role, of course, in maintaining the homeostasis, the balance of glucose. It alters the rate of glucose uptake into the cells, into the liver cells, and then can result in glycogen storage, dis dysregulation of glycogen storage. So it's an important gene. It's an important SNP. And if somebody has this, they're going to be more sensitive. They're going to be more prone to insulin resistance. We have another one called FTO. It means the fat mass and obesity associated protein. And it's an alpha ketoglutarate dependent enzyme. And what happens is when this is out of balance, people don't feel satiated after eating. It reduces insulin sensitivity. It reduces the feeling of, oh, I've eaten enough, and it increases appetite. So it increases 
the amount of food that somebody's going to consume, which is why it's called the fat mass and obesity associated protein. Another one that's super important is the SLCA2, solute carrier family two, member two. Big names, I don't know where they get them from. It codes for the sugar transporter receptor on the GLUT2. And a mutation here can induce beta cell differentiation, even in the absence of glucose. So what that means is it can cause us to produce more insulin, even in the absence of glucose. And what that means is that when we have more insulin, we end up with more appetite. We end up wanting more sweet stuff. People with insulin resistance and high levels of insulin after a meal, they just need that something sweet because they don't feel complete. So this one's also nicknamed the sweet tooth gene. There was a study back in 2008 that said that people with these SNPs would eat more sugar. It causes the brain to feel less sensitive to blood glucose levels. And we need to eat more fat and sugar to feel full. This might explain some of the people you've been working with. It might even explain yourself and one of the things, some of the things you're experiencing. So if it does feel like, oh, this stuff relates, go ahead and check your genes and see. So then there's another one called PPARG, peroxisome proliferation activated receptor gamma. And this controls the regulation of adipocyte, the, the fat cells and differentiate them. It's identified as an essential mediator for maintenance of the whole body insulin sensitivity. It protects non-adipose tissue against excess lipid overload and maintains normal function. It's associated with decreased insulin sensitivity, weight gain with diabetes. And the last one I want to talk about, I relate to this one big time. TCF7L2. It influences this transcription of several genes that affect insulin secretion and glucose production and the sensitivity to insulin. So overexpression of this stimulates insulin secretion and it's associated with an increased risk of, guess what, type 2 diabetes and also gestational diabetes. And to date, this is actually the most significant genetic marker that's been found for these. So there's two variants of this particular gene. One is the hunter-gatherer variant, and it's basically people whose starches are likely to cause blood sugar spikes. Hello, this is me. This is why I can't do starches because if I do, my blood sugar goes up. I have the hunter-gatherer variant of this, like the thrifty gene. And then the farmer variant can handle more starch. So if you're working with people and they're testing their glucose and they're saying, I have no problem with rice. And another person says, oh my God, every time I eat rice, my sugar climbs to 170. You'll understand they likely have the variant, the hunter-gatherer variant of this particular gene. So those are the genes. There's just a few of them. I have 16 pages of these in my blood sugar nutrigenomics charts. And there'll be a link on the page that the show notes are on where you can get access to that list. Okay, so now you've got these people and you've identified that they have some of these gene variants and they want your help. What do you do? Well, it's actually not that hard to work with them. It's hard for them to make the changes they need to 
because they basically don't want to, right? They're addicted to these foods. But for you, it's not rocket science to help these people. So let me give you a little overview of how I approach people. I approach everybody like this. I think everybody should be tested for blood sugar imbalance, but this especially if they have some of these genes, especially if they have, guess what, a family history of diabetes, a family history of insulin resistance and, and obesity. That's a clue, even if you don't test their genes, that they have some of these things going on. So the first thing we do is we test. We want to know what their glucose levels are. Your standard blood test will test fasting blood sugar. But we also want to test the hemoglobin A1C, which most doctors don't give. They don't ask people to test unless they're already diabetic. So that's important to test. And then the insulin. And we're looking for fasting blood sugars in somewhere in the low 80s. We're looking for hemoglobin A1C in like, I like 4.8 to 5.2. And we're looking for insulin between two and five, ideally between two and three. So if your people have not had this test before, highly recommend it. The combination of all three comes to maybe $50, well worth it. The other thing you need to do is teach them how to use a glucometer at home. And they could use the old fashioned, as I like to say these days, for finger prick and we have very specific ways that you can test so you can get a nice smooth curve about how high their blood sugar is going after a meal. I call that the peak. And we want to figure that out. So at first, when you're having them test, they're testing a lot. Their fingers might get sore. They might complain. But when they see the graphs, and you can help them based on those graphs to ident identify the foods that are causing them, identify the lifestyle habits or poor lifestyle habits that are contributing, they're happy. So if you can get them to do that, that's great. But the better way is to track via a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. And when I first started teaching this in public, like in a, in a, po in a program for people, I've been doing this for decades with people in my practice, but when I started doing this, I started a program to do this and people were like checking their glucoses and they were talking about their sore and bruised fingers. And then when the CGMs came out, maybe five or six years, I mean, they've been around a while, but came out publicly about five or six years ago, I started wearing one and people would say to me, well, what are you wearing? Oh, what is that thing on your arm? And I tell them, they go, oh, are you diabetic? And I would say, no, but I don't want to become diabetic. And I have genetic factors and I have things that would make me more diabetic if I don't manage my food. So this CGM helps me to identify what I can eat, what I can eat, the timing and all that. So nowadays, if somebody sees me with a CGM, because they've become popular over the last few years, is they go, oh, you're wearing it, which kind do you recommend? And what's the best one? Because they've heard of them before. Now, this isn't everybody, but this is a lot of the people that I encounter. So learning how to teach them how to do it postprandial, I highly recommend you learn that so you're better able to really look at the CGM output and figure it out. There are two right now that I've experimented with, the Freestyle Libre from Abbott and the Dexcom. And I'm able to get them. There are companies out there. We'll put the links on the show notes. When you teach people how to track and they know what to look for, they get really, really smart. And you want to help them to learn what to do about the peaks and the valleys on there. We don't see the valleys as many times as we see the peaks. We see the peaks all the time. People are peaking really high after meals, and then they come back down. And it takes a long time, oftentimes, when they have this problem. 
with the valleys is when people go into reactive hypoglycemia. And you want to learn how to detect those and teach people how to address those. We mostly see those in people who are either on a blood glucose lowering medication, and then they start to eat better, or people who are type 1 diabetic, and they're on insulin, or people who are type 2 diabetic, and their pancreas is worn out, and they were put on insulin. So those are the people you want to be careful about, and you want to look for those valleys. So We've taught them how to test. We, you understand, oh, this person's at risk. Now, what do you do? What do we do? We don't treat genes. I'll say that again. We don't treat genes. What we do is we support the lifestyle habits that help these genes to be optimized in their manifestation. So we start with diet and nutrients. And I, I oftentimes start with nutrients because certain nutrients like magnesium and chromium and DHA will actually help increase insulin sensitivity so that they get a little bit of an improvement in their cravings and then they're better able to work on the decreasing their sugar load. We want to look at their sugar load in relationship to the peaks and valleys we see when we test. And we want to address the peaks and valleys in those postprandials. Of course, you want to get them off of sugar. You want to get them off of all the, the junk foods, right? The stuff people shouldn't be eating. There's certain foods everybody shouldn't be eating, right? High fructose corn syrup and uh, sucrose and all kinds of, of sweeteners. But also there's other things that can damage insulin receptors like hydrogenated fats, trans fats, and, and things like that. So we want to help them with their diet, avoiding the foods that interfere with insulin receptor sensitivity. And we'll give you a link to uh, a document I put together if you want to make it easier on yourself. We also want to decrease their sugar load, like I said, support their nutrients. So those are the things from the diet nutrition standpoint. Now I'm, I'm simplifying this, right? But I'm simplifying this because we have a ton of information in our insulin resistance practitioner training. The other thing is looking at exercise. Are they over-exercising? Are they under-exercising? Most people are under-exercising or doing the wrong exercises for them. And you want to look at their charts, their peaks and valleys to see if it's related to slouching or overdoing it. And so including daily bursts can be helpful. Hit HIIT, like um, high intensity interval training has become real popular. I've been teaching it as burst training for the last I don't know, 20 years, but now it's becoming popular. So yay, way to go. And then um, stress management. So many people are in fight flight mode. That's gotten worse over the last couple of years. And people are always running away from tigers and the cortisol levels that can produce affect their insulin levels. So we want to make sure that we address that. We want to look at their sleep, poor sleep, even one night of bad sleep can lead to insulin resistance. And we want to look at their timing not eating too close to bedtime, spreading their meals out so their insulin levels can go down and we can restore sensitivity. These are things that everybody would be do, doing well to do, but especially when you find that people have either genetic history, you've asked them questions, or they've done some genes and they have some of the genes that I've talked about and others. So you can supplement when you need to and support methylation because a lot of the methylation genetic SNPs are related here. So MTHFR, MTRR, other things related to the B vitamins and the methylated B vitamins. So you want to support their methylation through diet and lifestyle and supplementation as needed. So when you know how to help people get back blood sugar control and metabolic health, it's critical 
to your success as a health practitioner. Because when you know how to do this, you're going to get results with people who have been struggling for a really, really long time. I believe that metabolic health, blood sugar balance, insulin sensitivity needs to be addressed first when you're working with somebody, along with, of course, their digestion. And for most people, this informs how the rest of the body performs. So if you've got somebody with hot flashes and you don't address their blood sugar imbalance, you're not going to help them very much with their hot flashes. You're just going to get symptomatic relief. I've seen so many dramatic changes in people. I've seen them reverse their autoimmune diseases in as little as four months. That's very quick, but there's others that do it in six months to a year. I've seen them improve inflammatory markers, improve like joint pains and all that. I've seen this change so much when you address the blood sugar. Okay. So we know there's no one size fits all. If you've learned anything from me before, and if you're new to me, you'll learn it. <laughs> there's no one size fits all. There's no, oh, give them the glucose balancing diet. You can't do that. You have to figure it out. And with the tools I just shared with you, and when you go deep with that, and you help them to address the healthy foods that work for them and the healthy foods that don't work for them, you're going to be successful. Some people thrive and other people perish on the same healthy diet. Most people perish on an unhealthy standard American type diet of processed foods. Not good. Maybe they're not perishing right away, but it's causing a lot of problems. But a lot of people are on a relatively healthy diet, but it's not a healthy diet for them. And one of those factors that plays in is the blood sugar balance. So you need to become proficient at identifying and correcting blood sugar imbalances. And even if you're not doing genetic testing per se, do a careful search on their family history. That will inform you as to what some of their genetic tendencies might be. And when people complain, like, why can my friend over here eat all those M&Ms and not gain weight and not have any problems? She's healthy, but I can't. You can say genetics plays a role. If you want to explore that, we can do some genetic testing and take a look to see if you have some of these genes. So on the show notes page and at reinventhealthcare.com, you'll see links to resources that are going to help you become proficient. Our charts are available as part of our NEPT, our Nutritional Endocrinology Practitioner Training, but also there's a special nutrigenomics bundle that I've listed on the show notes page. Download our genetics resource kit at reinventhealthcare.com forward slash genes. When you use this testing that I explained to you, and when you identify the power of nutrition and lifestyle to restore people to balance, you are going to see major changes in people and kinds of cases that you did not have success with before. You're going to feel fulfilled and your practice will thrive. And that's what we're all here for, right? We want to be successful at helping people change this broken medical system and make a good living doing it so we don't need a day job. So just remember to download the genetics guide at reinventhealthcare.com forward slash genes. And until next time, shine on. Thank you for listening to the reinvent healthcare podcast. Join the movement of practitioners that are guiding people to actually get well rather than covering up their symptoms. Connect with us at reinventhealthcare.com to access resources and tools that will empower you to create a thriving health practice.